Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 74 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. I've been thinking a lot about this episode. I've been thinking a lot about all of these episodes, and I have to be honest, rehashing a lot of these years is incredibly painful. Two reasons. One, I had an idea of what my life would be like at this time. And so when I'm telling these stories and rehashing memories, good and bad, it just reminds me that my life blew up not too many years after the time period I'm talking about, and it isn't the way that it was at all. I saw a grief quote the other day that went something like, it's not just the loss of the person that we're grieving, it's the loss of everything we thought would happen with that person that we're grieving. And this is especially true when young people die. You grieve a future that will never occur. So, you know, years and years go by and people sometimes, I know they look at me like, you're still sad? Well, yeah, because she's not here doing all the things I totally assumed she would be here doing, she being Molly. The other piece is I look at what I sacrificed for the people involved in this story and how much it hurt my life so much. And with all of the new information around relationships and domestic violence and mental illness and trauma response, I think it's important that people that have stories like mine share them. I don't think the people that they're about like it too much. And I know that people that have, that have lived the lives and done and said the things that Amy and Roy have done want very much for those people that they've hurt to disappear or be out of their lives, or they want to manipulate what happened so they can save face to those who are in their lives and important to them now. So it's been a tricky, tricky journey. The other thing I'll say before I get going on the story piece is, is when I talk about restraining orders, you know, I had never even heard of a restraining order. And then when I helped Chris Rath, she was then the principal of Concord High School, get rid of a particular teacher, the one, you know, science guy that deflowered me at the tender age of 15. I started to be harassed and realized I needed some sort of legal protection. And that was the first time I ever went for a restraining order. A court proceeding to me is a serious and scary sort of thing. And so and I'm not one to use, use the court system, system to manipulate people. I feel like there's a statute, and if your situation applies to the statute, then a restraining order is the right thing to do. I didn't know at all how Amy and Roy would manipulate and use the court system in future years. It was an eye-opening, mind-boggling experience. But at this moment in time, I had a friend who was afraid and thought she needed significant help. And I wasn't in a position to not believe her. I mean, I had my doubts. I often had my doubts around things that she said based on how much she manipulated and twisted my truth. You know, if she was willing to tell me to my face that I said something I never said and insist that I had, you know, then I wasn't sure sometimes what she might be willing to say or do around the behaviors of others. I also want to reiterate, rather repeat a little bit of the, the year leading up to the restraining order, which was a lot of last episode's content. Gracie and Morgan were in first grade. Teresa was a freshman in high school at the time. And as I was recalling and remembering so many of the events of that year, so I was at the high school and I actually had her in health class in the fall. 
as things began to unravel and tank in her house, she would come to my classroom a lot. There were a couple of days that she came and just spent the entire school day in my office. So my office was giant. It was a closet essentially, but we had both of our desks in there. My, my co-teacher, Julie, and I, everything was stored in there. Teresa would come a lot up to my classroom to check in and fill me in on what was going on. And the terror in her voice and, and the fear that she felt and how much she just wanted a normal life was heart-wrenching. She also was on my cross-country team. And so I saw a lot of her and I just would watch her. And when she was in her moments where she wasn't thinking, where she was just with her friends, where she was enjoying herself and having fun, she had just this beautiful, happy face. And in the moments when she was sharing with me the next bits and pieces of what was going on, the stress and fear and anxiety was palpable. And I really ached for her, like I would for any, any of my students. But, you know, I had known her since her first weeks living in Concord. And so I felt particularly akin to her. There was also a couple of times during this year that Amy brought things to the school for me to hide. She brought Roy's laptop once and wanted me to hide it in my classroom. And I felt very uncomfortable. First of all, it's a school building. I, you know, I have to be careful what I have in my classroom. I didn't want to get in the middle of some legal battle, but I kept it there for a while. I just had it in my classroom. And I remember, you know, a year later when I had connected with Roy sharing all of this at that time, she had me hide things like that. And she also just really began to cling, cling, cling and be around me a lot. She meaning Amy. There were several moments that whole year, that school year was the year that Amy had a very close relationship with somebody that she was very secretive about. And so much of her, what was going on and her behaviors in the fall of it would be 2007, were around her strong, strong desire to be accepted and sort of taken in by this person. And then knowing that she needed to keep it from Roy. And I'm not sure at that point, I don't remember if she really wanted to end her marriage at that time, or if it was the balance of keeping both things going. It was at this time that Roy began to really get the idea of what was happening. And I talked a little bit about that last time as well. In the piece that I spoke of, and I didn't remember it clearly, but I do now, was, was Teresa coming to me and blurting out all these horrible things that Roy had told her, that he sat her down and told her all these terrible things about her mother and everything that she did. Did you know your mom did this? Did you know your mom did this? Did you know your mom did this? She just was astounded. Like, why are you telling me this? You know, and I remember listening to this and being disgusted. No parent in their right minds brings a child into their life at all. And parents do it all the time, but it's the most disgusting, horrible thing you can do. Keep your children out of it. They just deserve to be kids and live their freshman and high school life. I and I had a very hard time with this. So hard, in fact, that I communicated this to Roy. I believe I called him on the phone. He would call me a lot to try to see where Amy was. He would text me, do you know where she is? It was this sort of ongoing communication now. And I really was in the middle of a battle that I wanted no part of. I remember telling him, I really got mad at him. You, you have no right pulling her into this. What, what were you thinking? It's not her job. She shouldn't take a side. She shouldn't take a side. She shouldn't know either. Putting her in the middle makes her choose between parents. There is nothing more damaging to a child than being told you have to love one more than the other. I'm the victim here. And this was what Roy was trying to, to really pin onto Teresa was that Amy was the evil one, not him, because I don't know. But having heard enough of 
the fights that Amy and Roy had and the, the language used and having gone in that morning to pick up Morgan for school and heard it with my own ears, what was going on up there and just being a bit over the top about it. I really did try to support Teresa in this. And I remember after me saying all that to him, he came to school. I heard Teresa get paged to the main office. I'm like, oh no, who's here now? And she came up afterwards and said that it was Roy and that he had come to apologize. Like, I shouldn't have said all those things. I won't put you in the middle. Now, at the time, I thought that was a genuine apology, but <laughs> Roy has continued to use poor Teresa as, as a sounding board for everything in his life. It's the most bizarre thing ever. And I'm not ready to talk about that yet because that doesn't come to play for a while. Looking back on these now, having seen all the things that have happened since this fall and, and spring of 2007, 2008, so many things fell into place for me. So that year was tumultuous, tumultuous for them. Then there was a chunk of time that they went running all the time, that Amy and Roy were going to couples counseling, and he felt that they were really working on it and let's stay together and all this. But I don't know that that was really ever in Amy's mind. And I know that things were still really, really tumultuous and anger producing. Nothing was okay in that relationship. What happened next is it begins to be winter into spring. And I had Teresa for indoor track. It was nice to see her. And I liked getting her out of her environment, not having to go home. She was not overly involved in either sport, but she made several friends in these, in these experiences. It was wonderful to just see her hanging out at school with people her own age, not, not having to go home. I do know there were times that she wouldn't be at practice and I would check in with her and she would say that her mother told her she had to go home to watch Morgan. You know, that behavior still continued. At this time too, Amy was working quite a lot with the road race timing company good on me getting people jobs in my, in my places. And she was good at it. So I can't say that it was a bad thing for her. It was a very bad thing for me. And I'll get into that in the next couple of episodes. So spring starts to unfold and Amy and I, we still spend some time together. We have pulled back tremendously and she knows it. And it's mostly a stressful relationship. And what people like Amy do when they get stressed out is they act like a cornered raccoon where everything is a bit of a strike. And so if I didn't do exactly what she wanted me to do, then I had the claws and I was, you know, a bad person. And it was hard for me because I just felt I was invested in the relationship still. We had had some really good times together. In the spring, I remember going to a road race with her. There's a road race series called Cars, Capital Area Race Series. And she was timing the very first race. And it was at this race that she was going to see this person that she had had a really, really close relationship with for the first time in months. There was all this drama and stress around it, which there would be, that that's not a bad thing. It was a stressful time. Pulled her away from her children quite a bit. But I remember being at this race and seeing her and just seeing how anguished and stressed out she looked and how anguished and stressed out this other person looked. And it was just this no-win situation. I didn't quite know how to wrap my head around it. But I also spent some time talking with Amy at this race. It was freezing cold weather. It was a terrible day. But we spent some time, I think, sitting in our car, my car, her car, just talking and catching up. And she was extremely, at this point, telling me she was afraid of Roy. This was March leading into April. And, and March was the time that she really opened up to me about being afraid of Roy. She shared that she had filled out when she had had her surgery and checkups that she was felt unsafe in her home. 
she had let me listen to some fights and, and I had told her that I didn't like what I heard when I was there to bring Morgan to school. She showed me this massive bruise on the hairline of her head and it was a pretty significant bruise. It went, you know, if you pulled the hair back, you could see that she had had a bruise. It was like she'd had her head bashed into the floor. And that's exactly what she said happened, that she had been in a physical fight with Roy and that he had really stepped over the edge and she felt that she needed to get a restraining order. When you see a bruise on anybody, and, and again, at the time, I simply believed her. I don't know now if she orchestrated it. When I spoke to Roy a couple of years later about all of this, he acknowledged the truth of the velocity of the fight, but denied her version of the story. At any rate, she asked me what I thought and did I know how to do it? And I said, well, yes, I've actually done one. You just have to go and fill out some paperwork. I had an attorney friend to help me. She asked me if I knew anybody, any attorneys. And at that time I said, no, I didn't know anyone at the moment. In between the first round and the next round of court hearings, I did find someone for Amy. But at that point, no, it was just her. And I said, do you want me to go with you? And she said, no, she went and got the paperwork. I don't remember if she filled it out at the courthouse or if she filled it out and showed me. I thought I just have a memory of see, seeing it. And I was driving to a cross-country meet and she said that she had submitted it. So what happens in the state of New Hampshire is you submit paperwork asking for a restraining order. You're automatically granted one, a five-day one, or you're given a date for a hearing. And up to the point of that hearing, the person that has the restraining order can't go anywhere near the house or anything like that. I was driving to a track and field clinic. I was with a woman named Stephanie, who I ended up working at the charter school with. She came to the track and field clinic. She's another similar person I poured a ton of money into to help. She doesn't speak to me now. So I have a type apparently. I'm driving to the track and field clinic and Amy calls. And so I answer my phone. And she tells me that she submitted the paperwork and that she has this temporary restraining order. So Roy is on a trip. He's away and he's not going to be back until a certain night. So I get back from my weekend away at the track and field clinic. And I believe it's a Sunday night or perhaps a Monday night, but I'm lying in bed with the girls and Amy calls me and it's nighttime. And she said, Roy is coming home. He'll be home any minute. I, my heart is pounding. I said, where are you? And she goes, I'm in my bedroom looking out the window. So her back bedroom window looked down on their driveway. So I'm on the phone with her. So I'm sitting at the foot of my bed. So I just go to my window. I can't see anything from my window, but I just felt like it was my way of being with her standing at a window. And she said, okay, here, he just pulled up in his truck. She said, okay, the police cars are here. So how it works is the police knew he was coming home. Amy let them know when he'd be arriving home and they surround him. So she describes it to me. She says, he's getting out of the truck, talking to him. He's got his hands on his knees. He's looking down. Okay, I have to go down and present his bag. So she had packed belongings for him because he was on a trip. So all he had was his pilot bag. So apparently she had packed several changes of clothes and she was at the door to hand that off. And I was on the phone throughout the whole thing. So when it was all said and done and he drove away, I said, how do you feel? And she said, I feel incredibly relieved. That was an incredibly stressful, powerful moment. and. For people that actually really do need restraining orders, this would be an incredible freeing moment. Having gone through all that I've gone through now with her and him, she likely didn't need that restraining order. At least that's how I feel now. Having said that, let me continue on. So for the next few days, I, I tried to stay close to her just because I, I was concerned and worried. And she had a hearing coming up. We had to go. So I agreed to go with her. She didn't have anybody. And this was like the temporary, you know, one or whatever. So. 
I went with her. So I'm sitting in the court waiting room hallway with her, sitting next to her. And of course, in comes Roy, and Roy has an attorney with him. In my head and in my heart, I'm sort of praying for him to fight it, to really fight it, and for it not to occur. As much as I don't like at all how he treats Amy or the girls in 2008, we're talking now, I also wasn't a fan of how Amy treated the girls or the marriage in general. And I, believe me, I've, I've made a million mistakes. I am not standing on a soapbox here. I was really, really just agitated. And I was just praying that in the course of this hearing, there would be testimony and talking and the truth would come out. So we're sitting and waiting. I believe Amy, because she was bringing it on, got to go first. She just did a little bit of talking about why she felt she needed the protective order and all this. And Roy and his attorney stood up and said, we're not fighting it. We accept the restraining order. So to me, that was a huge admission of guilt on the part of Roy that he had done something to Amy that warranted a restraining order. No one would let a restraining order happen that wasn't valid. Again, this is something that he would argue later. And having a good handle on his attorney, I know his attorney, I was appalled. I just sat there dumbfounded. And Amy was equally dumbfounded. I was, I'm pretty sure she thought that Roy would fight it as well. But he didn't. He just said he knew that that meant he couldn't go to the house. He could do civil standbys to collect items that were his. And I know that several of those happens throughout the year. You have to call a police officer. You have to make a list of what you want. And then the person has to deliver the list of what you want. I do know that I think Roy could have actually been allowed to go into the home with a police officer and retrieved things on his own. And Amy was very adamant that that not happen, that she would bring to him what he asked for. I stayed out of a lot of this, and I'll get into that as we go into the year following the restraining order. But when we left court that day, you know, Amy really talked about being an abused woman and how she had no confidence now, and she was just this victim of abuse, and she wanted to rebuild her children's sense of safety and make her home a happy place. She really spoke these things in a way that made me believe them. And I remember thinking, all right, Amy and I really can be good friends now. You know, we can do this. So what happened is I went back to school. I think I even missed school for this, you know, took time off from my school day. So I went back to my life and she went back to hers and I didn't hear from her for a couple of days. I called to check in. She didn't call back. She was now doing some pulling away and I wasn't quite sure what was going on at the time, but she was adamant that I just sort of accept her as she was. So Here's what began to happen. So this is now April, May, and June. So the restraining order happened around late March, early April. So the remainder of the school year, Teresa would call me in a panic. My mother's not home. She said she would be home at one. She said she's timing a road race and she'd be home. She isn't home. It's four o'clock. Morgan's hungry. I'm not supposed to use the stove. I don't know what to make her for dinner. So there were a couple of times I assisted the, the girls. You know, I helped out. This happened two or three times in a very short period of time. The weekend would come and Amy would disappear. I mean, disappear. I would then text or call Amy to say, where are you? You have two children home alone. Why aren't you home? So she had, had met somebody involved in the running community that lived out of state. And so she was spending a significant amount of time with this person, which I didn't know this piece of it at the time. When she shared with me, you know, what she had done for the 12 hours she wasn't home with her kids, you know, she, she can date whoever she wants. It's her life. But she just told a judge that she was damaged and wanted to rebuild the trust of her children for home to be a happy place. And she had left a 13-year-old and a 7-year-old home alone for hours. 
hours all by themselves. The road races that we time, you have to leave town at like five in the morning. So Morgan and Teresa were home all by themselves all day long. It was impossible for them, either of them, to have a normal day. I can't imagine that they made it easy on one another. They're siblings, <laughs> angry siblings that don't want to be stuck home alone. No play dates, you know, just nothing. Normally, in years past, Amy had really, really created things for them to do. So I was the person they'd call. I was the adult. I do believe Teresa had other adults that she called. But when it came to really needing help or somebody to come over, it was me that was often called. And there were times that I did come over. There were a couple of times that I came over and got Morgan and brought her back to my house so she could play with Gracie. The problem here is that Gracie is very, very intuitive and she started to figure out that things weren't right. I also think we were being trash talked. I think that's how it worked. I know that Roy thought I was this big part of, you know, making him look bad. So I'm sure he said negative things about me. I know that Amy was that way. And so kids hear this stuff. And I don't know that Morgan or Teresa ever shared it, but, you know, they had to intuit that. I didn't let Gracie go over there anymore. Got to the point now where, you know, after the incident where I had left both of the girls there and Roy didn't know that he was babysitting and he was downstairs in the power saw and I came and collected Molly and I didn't even know she was missing. Like it wasn't a safe place at all for kids to be. I began to be, to really, really become angry. And I felt like I was duped. I felt like I was in an impossible situation. So there were a couple of those situations where Amy was sort of testing the waters with this road race person. And she, she would travel to races that were an hour or two or three from her house and not bring the, the girls with her. They would be home in that big house. One day, Teresa comes into school and she's utterly distraught. And she was actually super early. She, came, she just came flying up into my classroom. And she said there was some guy asleep in her house in his underwear and she didn't know what to do. And she just got out of there as fast as she could. And she was horrified. This is when I started to think I needed to pull in social services because I didn't know what was going on. So I called Amy, called her on the phone from my classroom at school. Amy, live your life, but leave your kids out of it. What are you doing? If you're going to have someone at your house, keep them in your room with you or hide them or whatever. But you have two children that are seeing all of this. And she was a shut door to me now, a very, very, very shut door. She thought I was judging her like I was somehow better. She would bring up any story I had told her about my past. She would bring right up to remind me that I was no better than she was. And I would just say to her, right now, I just have a husband and two kids and I do the best I can to give them a good life. I supported you in this. I went to court with you. I believed you. And I had found her an attorney by now, a very hardcore attorney named Linda, who would fight for Amy. I just didn't know what to do. I felt completely and utterly befuddled. This went along the remainder of spring. And so, so Amy and I really did pull apart. So summer came and along with summer comes working the road races. And, you know, my road race director, Bob, always wanted to put Amy and I working together. And sometimes that was a good way for us to be together. We, we did well. We each had our jobs. She was on the computer. Typically, I would do the manual stuff, the timing and all. We had a couple of good experiences. And there were a couple of good experiences at the park. But she was less and less involved with Teresa and Morgan than ever before. And I remember going to the park once. And Morgan was there by herself. So... It is the summer before second grade. So Morgan is seven and she's in the pool by herself. I was there with Gracie and Molly and I remember saying, Morgan, who are you here with? And she's like, nobody, I came by myself. 
I don't know, maybe I'm helicopter parenting. There weren't a lot of seven-year-olds there without somebody watching them. And, and so I, I felt incredibly sad and I felt complicit. I felt like I had taken part in creating a life that wasn't good for these girls. I didn't think the life they had before was good for them, but there was at least accountability. And the knot in my stomach grew and grew. This was also the summer that I started my sabbatical. So I had a couple of, of workshops, two or three workshops where I was away. I was away for a lot of this, this particular summer. I went away on my first sabbatical trip and cried for three hours in the car because I had never been away from Gracie and Molly for five nights in a row. I was a mess. I didn't have kids until I was older. I loved and wanted to be with Molly and Gracie all the time. This aspect of Amy just dumping her kids on other people was heart-wrenching to me and anger-producing. And it wasn't just me that noticed it. It was about this time, there are two neighbors in that neighborhood that I know, separate from, from Amy and Roy. One neighbor in particular, they live really close and they would call on the phone. I probably got four or five phone calls over the course of this year telling me that they were just hearing screaming and crying and fighting. And oftentimes it was, you know, there was no adult around and the sobbing. And all I could say was then call the police, leave me out of it. I can't do this. It was summertime for the beginning parts of this, mid-July. So this was 2008. And Amy was there and she was all dressed up. She looked fantastic. She looked beautiful. And she had this dog with her, this big dog. And I said, did you get a dog? And she goes, yes, we got a dog. And there was this guy with her, this big, giant, tall, bald guy named Bob. And I said, oh, it's nice to meet you. And he goes, yeah, I'm just hanging out with Amy, having so much fun hanging out with Amy. It seemed like a happy thing, but it was a bizarre meeting. And I, and I just sort of looked at Amy. Bob had several connections to my life as well, separate from him now being with Amy. He had a family, a wife and adult children, I believe, but a family that he was a part of that he sort of disappeared out of and jumped into this thing with Amy. And I believe he moved right in with her really, really quickly, like in the summer. So the restraining order took place at the end of April. And by July, the people that she had been seeing and dating were gone. And Bob was like a fixture. He had moved in. I went over to visit a couple of times, drop off race equipment. Amy was very, very shut off. I just said, look, I'm your friend and I'm just worried. I think you're putting a lot of stress on your kids. And she did not want to hear it. I'm not the mother of Morgan or Teresa. Morgan was really struggling and Amy had really lost all control of her. You know, I didn't even know how to react around it. One time prior to all of this restraining order, so Morgan was very, very particular about who she was close to and who she communicated with. And she spent so much time at my house that when she was at my house, she was as chattery and friendly as ever. When we were at her house, she was much more quiet and she became incredibly quiet this summer of 2008. So one time standing in line at Daisy Scouts, her collar was crooked. And so I adjusted her collar. Amy was standing right there and I didn't get any response at all from Morgan. She didn't look happy or sad, just sort of nothing. I adjusted the collar and Amy says, go ahead and tell her, Morgan. You can tell her that it's not her place to touch you without your permission. And Morgan just sort of stood there. And so I just said, oh, Morgan, I apologize. I, I just straightened your collar. I apologize. I do it all the time. I'm a school teacher. There was no response, positive or negative, from Morgan. But Amy created this reality where I was this bad person that was touching her daughter. And it was just bizarre. I remember at the time thinking, okay, that's something you could have told me any old time. It made a very uncomfortable scenario. I just stood there like, oh my God, oh my God, she thinks I'm a monster. It was a horrifying experience. What it illustrated to me as an elementary special ed teacher, as somebody that minored in psychology, as somebody that was now a health educator that had taken all those classes around domestic violence and mental health, all of it, 
I was just in this horrified state of the reality clicking in of what was now happening in this house. I was at a loss to do anything to help it. I just apologized profusely again. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. And I just looked at Amy and I said, I'm not sure what to do here. So I'm just going to leave. If you need me, call me. So about three or four weeks after that, Teresa called in another panic because apparently Bob had, had left with a note, left their house keys. I can't do this relationship. I'm going back to my family and had left. And so Amy was a disastrous mess. I never, ever heard how Morgan reacted to this. I know that Teresa was wigged out because her mother was wigged out. So her mother disappeared and Bob's family said, no, you're not allowed here. You go away. He's our, he's our family. And it was his current wife at the time, or maybe his ex-wife. I don't know. And so what I remember is Amy calling me and saying, you, well, you need to help me. You need to watch the girls. Please be here for the girls. I need you to be here for the girls. So part of it I could, but schedule-wise, part of it I couldn't. I couldn't move into her house for three days and take care of her girls. Both of them, well, mostly Morgan, spent piles of time sitting in a car while she navigated and finagled and managed to get in to see him. And at the end of however long he had to stay where he was, he came back home with her. This would bring us up to the beginning of, of the next school year when Molly now is a kindergartner, Gracie and Morgan are second graders, and Teresa is a sophomore. The one significant event I'll share again right now, and then we'll end this episode, is the friendship with, with Morgan and Teresa began to become impossible because it had to be completely one-sided. And the Morgan that would come over to play was so hurting and so upset that Gracie didn't know, even know what to do. It became impossible. And I also know that I became an enemy. I wasn't all loving and supportive of Amy jumping into a live-in relationship three months after she had gotten a restraining order against Roy. Like I, I just felt like her behavior just made a fool of me, not me publicly. I, I didn't walk around feeling like a fool. I just felt manipulated, like I was pulled into to a dance that I had no idea was going on. That's the best way for me to say this, but I began to become very afraid. And so when school started and we got the class lists, Gracie was in a class with no one that she knew, not one of her friends, not, not a one. And Gracie was a tender, tender soul. And so I went to the principal and said, absolutely not. The only friend she had in that classroom was Morgan. And that was a friendship that I needed to pull away from that family. I didn't need to pull away from the friendship, but there was no one else that Gracie had ever hung around with in that class. No one. All of her friends, her big chunk of friends that she had had, some from preschool, kindergarten, first grade, were in another teacher's class. And so I insisted, based on all that was happening in that family and how out of control things were, that I wanted them separated. I didn't care what classroom Gracie got put in, but it couldn't be the one she was in with Morgan. And so she got moved into a classroom with more of her friends. Apparently, Amy tried to do the same thing to get Morgan taken out of that class and put into a different one. And she was told no. And this became another area where I was out to get her. I got what I wanted. You got what you wanted, Barbara, and I didn't. And, you know, I didn't understand at the time. I couldn't wrap my head around why she felt Morgan needed to not be in that class. Morgan had a couple of good friends in that class, friends that she maintained for a few years after leaving Concord. But at that time, it just became another wedge between us. So the school year starts. I have Teresa doing cross country again. And the change in Teresa is palpable. She has a lot of, a lot of just under the grid anger. I call it the undertoad, but it's not anxiety, it's anger. She was always willing to talk to me. And I totally, totally always appreciated that. 
And again, cross country was a way for her to spend a longer day at school. I was doing my sabbatical. So as that school year started, classes I was working in were at Kimball School. And I worked with K-1 and 2. So I worked at Kimball School with the one kindergarten class there that Molly was in and the first and second grade classes that remained at Kimball. And then I also worked at Walker School with the K-1-2 classes that were there. So I spent a lot of time in the morning at Kimball School and in the afternoons at Walker School. So I saw a lot of Morgan in a much different environment because I was a teacher and she was coming to a class I was offering. But it was a tricky start. It was a very, very stressful and tumultuous start to the school year. One that really, really existed because of all that had gone on in the summer. I'm listening to children suffer and struggle all year long with Amy and Roy together. I help her get a restraining order because I feel like they're all in danger. And then within two weeks of that restraining order, strangers are coming in and life is in a complete upheaval and nothing is as Amy told the judge that she wanted it to be. And so this was incredibly difficult for me. I will not judge Amy. I will not say she's a bad person for what she did. She clearly was functioning in a trauma-related state. Based on what she shared with me about her childhood, she would function in a similar manner. You know, as I'm recording this, she's still with that person. So she found her person. I will say that. When I look back, I don't know anything about what their life is like, but that was 2008. You know, 15 years have gone by since then. So in retrospect, looking back now, she must have known that this was her person. But at the time, I just felt it was executed in a way that put everybody at risk. And I didn't know what to do at all. So I'll stop here because really that chunk of time from the restraining order in the spring until school starting in the fall was the most tumultuous. And that was, I would say, true friendship ending time for us. We still communicated and did things together, primarily around work and road races and such. But, you know, hanging out and and being really friendly, that sort of ended. And I'll get into more of that when I talk about the following school year, 2008, 2009, which would ultimately be my last truly safe school year. (laughs) I didn't know that at the time. So anyway, thank you for listening. I'm sharing all this, not because I want to expose another family's actions. Everything I'm telling you was witnessed and is known by anyone and everyone that was involved in the lives of that family. I'm not unearthing some big secret. Yes, as a podcast, people that have never met this family or people that weren't close are now going to hear, but there was so much newspaper coverage and so much publicity around my involvement with that family and everything that happened that me telling this aspect of the story doesn't expose anything that isn't already known by an unbelievably large number of people. I share my piece in it because I'm responsible for my actions and I chose to help her and I chose to believe her. And I can't unchoose those things now. All I can do is hope that what I did was right in the long run and you know, ask forgiveness from the universe or the Lord or whomever for anything I might've done that was wrong. I'll own my piece of it always. I made these choices. What's hard for me is that (laughs) it's so clear to me that if I hadn't, my life would have been much different. And I sadly believe that Molly would still be here. And that's me processing my grief. Before you jump in with five feet and help someone that you might not know, they really need help or not, do your homework, be meticulous and go slowly and and be safe. Be good to yourself. Always be good to yourself. Self-care, self-care. For me right now, it's hot yoga. (laughs) I can't believe I like it as much as I do, but I do. I'm really enjoying it. It's like a therapy session. So be good to yourself. And once you've done something good for yourself, be good to someone else. And be careful when you're good to someone else. Make sure it's the right thing to do. 
And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.